Well, I invite you to take your Bible this morning and please open it with me to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. Now, when we were kids, I remember people used to have bug zappers hanging up outside in the summer. Anybody else remember those? I don't, I don't know if I just if they're not as common anymore or if the people that I know just don't use them. I don't know. But I don't see them as much anymore. But you, you could entertain yourself watching that blue light draw in the bugs, mosquitoes, other insects. Actually, I, I, I found out that they don't really do a very, very good job of drawing in mosquitoes, but they draw a lot of other bugs in. But of course, these bugs fly into the, the bug zapper and they get, they get closer to that light. But around the light, there's a wire mesh. And as these bugs get in close to that wire mesh, their bodies complete an electrical circuit and 2,000 volts of electricity zap them to death. There's often a satisfying sizzle that accompanies the bug's demise. It's kind of entertaining, actually. Well, this morning, I feel a little bit like a moth that's flying around close to the bug zapper. The light looks pretty, but if I get too close, I might get zapped. Lord willing, uh, this morning I plan to look together at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And this is one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. Entire books have been written, and I'm not exaggerating, trying to explain this passage or arguing for a particular interpretation of this passage over against all the alternatives. Churches and denominations have split over the interpretation of these verses. But if you've been here at Emmanuel Baptist for any length of time, you know that I don't shy away from difficult or controversial passages. Anybody remember the sermon on greet one another with a holy kiss? <clears throat> Most of the time, I believe a passage is controversial in the Bible because we don't want to believe what it says. And although there are some passages that are a little bit tricky to interpret, I'm not going to pretend that everything in the Bible is easy to understand. I'm convinced, and I have for almost 10 years now built my ministry on this conviction, that with consistent principles of Bible interpretation, there are very few places in the Bible where a passage remains cloudy after we have studied it. Now, that does not mean that you're going to get all of your questions answered this morning. For one, there's not enough time, and there are way too many questions. I'll be honest, as I was writing this out on Friday, my message out on Friday, and then I finished it yesterday, um, I felt as if I was racing through this passage, and I felt like there were a lot of things I wanted to stop and park on, uh, but I knew I wouldn't have time. And that's okay. Right? I'll leave it for another time. Maybe another study will come through and do a study where we go a little more in-depth on some of these points. Okay? But that's not my purpose here this morning. 
What we're trying to do this morning and what we want to do is we want to understand what Paul is trying to say to Timothy. And so we can't ignore any of the words or phrases here in this passage. We can't just skip over something because it's tricky and go, well, we'll just ignore that part. At the same time, we don't have to settle every single question in order to know the point that Paul is trying to make here. And so that's what we're trying to do. We want to look at these verses and we want to understand them, remember, in light of the context of what we have studied so far in 1 Timothy. And so if you've been tracking with us, I realize the last couple Sundays you had to watch them online, not here in person. But uh, if you've been tracking with us, you hopefully have an appreciation for the context that we are in. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But let's look at these verses, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 down to verse 15. Notice what Paul says here in verse 8. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. is and what a woman is. We may deny it, but we know what it is. Paul says, as men, he says, Here's what you are to do. You are to pray everywhere. And everywhere is in every place. Without, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, lifting up holy hands, he says, without wrath and doubting in the New King James or contention, uh, I would suggest is a better word there. Paul likely has in mind, when he says in every place or everywhere, he's, he's not saying like, you know, everywhere in the world. He's referring to where Christians gather. In every place that Christians gather, I, I want the men to stand up and pray. And he's probably referring here, remember, Timothy is, is a city of Ephesus, ministering, big city. Um, the, 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 the church that met in Ephesus probably didn't meet together in one group very much. They met in homes, in small groups. But Paul is saying in every place, in every one of these gatherings, Men, as men, need to stand up and lead the church in prayer. It was the duty, Paul says, of men to lead the congregation in prayer. Now, does this mean that women can't pray in public or can't pray in a church service? And the answer to that question would have to be no. Not from, we don't know that from 1 Timothy 2, but because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about women praying in the gathering of the church. In fact, Paul indicates they're supposed to pray in the church with their heads covered. That's a whole other issue on 1 Corinthians 11. And if I survive the bug zapper this morning, maybe we'll go back and look at that another time. <laughs> now, the issue is not that men should pray exclusively and no women should ever pray. But what Paul is saying is, man, you need to take the lead in the ministry of prayer. Men, you need to lead the way in the public gatherings of the church. But notice there's two qualifications that he gives for the men here. This is really important. It's not just any guy who walks into the church that we should say, hey, why don't you come up here and lead us in prayer? No, Paul says those who can lift up holy hands. Now, what does that mean? Well, these are men who have lives that are upright and pleasing to God. He's not so much concerned with the posture of prayer here, right? Right? 
The focus here is not so much on lifting our hands when we pray. Though there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the point necessarily. The emphasis is on the holiness here. Now, does this mean that the men have to be perfect to pray? Well, I hope not. Because if so, nobody's going to get up here and pray. Right? None of us would be qualified. But what is Paul saying? He's saying these are men who give evidence of their in their life of their commitment to Christ, of their, their personal uh, 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 holiness, their desire to follow Christ, their commitment to him. This should be evident in their life. And so then they should get up and lead in prayer. Homer Kent puts it very plainly. I like this. He says, persons living openly in sin have no business offering public prayer and should not be called upon to do so. It's really simple. We can't know everything about a person, so we can't know what's in their heart. But here's what we should know. If we know this person, this, this man, is, has got sin in his life that he's not repented of, he should not be up in front leading in prayer. So if there's somebody in the church and he's going through you know, some area of sin he's dealing with, and, and maybe he's dealing with it, maybe he's repenting, maybe you're, but, he's, but he's got this area of known sin in his life, he should not be getting up and leading the church in prayer. So it should be restricted to men who have a testimony of obedience, of following the Lord, of personal commitment uh, to holiness. These men have to have a good reputation. But notice they also, there's a second thing. So he says, holy hands lifted up, right? But there's something that has to be missing as well without uh, wrath and doubting. That's the New King James, or I think the Old King James says the same thing. The word doubting here, uh, and there's a there's a textual variant here, and I won't get into all that. But it's not really speaking here of a lack of faith. What it's talking about here is, is, is the presence of conflict bad feelings uh, toward others. Anyone, and this is what Paul is really getting at here, anyone who would get up and lead the church in worship by means of prayer needs to be in fellowship with the brothers and sisters that he seeks to lead. Anything else, right? If, if, if I'm going to get up here and I'm going to lead us, brothers and sisters, let's go to the Lord in prayer. But there's some sort of conflict, some sort of open, uh, 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 you know, disagreement or dispute that is unresolved. It's not been taken care of. That, that's really hypocrisy. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's be of like mind and go to the Lord, but we're not of like mind. See, Can we expect God to be pleased with our prayers if they're offered in a spirit of hostility? Dispute church fights. I don't think we can. By the way, this is this is a separate thing, but I think it's a, a worthwhile point to make. This is one of the reasons why we ought to practice the Lord's Supper more often and not less often. You say, wait, wait, how does that follow, Pastor? Well, because when we come to the Lord's table, what are we to do? We are to examine ourselves. One, to make sure that we're in the faith, to make sure that we are born again. I know Jesus Christ. But two, to make sure we are in fellowship with one another. That's a point I always try to emphasize when we share the Lord's Supper. It's not enough to say, yeah, I know God. I've trusted Jesus. I'm forgiven. Okay, but how is your relationship with the body? See, Because we're going to share in this. And Jesus, or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that that is an essential component of this Lord's Supper gathering when we do that, is that we would have fellowship, true fellowship. And so when we practice the Lord's Supper, we examine ourselves, we can confess our sins, we seek to be reconciled with one another, 
guess what? That, that, that makes us qualified now to be able to get up and lead in prayer. See? So that's a good reason for us to do that. If we plan to engage in any kind of ministry for God, and this is, this is not just for the men, okay? If we plan to engage in any kind of ministry for God, we must have a right relationship with him, but we also have to have a right relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We cannot think that we can get up and serve God while we have neglected the fellowship of the saints or we have refused to deal with some interpersonal issue that there is, some sin or offense that has been committed that needs to be dealt with. We need to take care of that. Paul says here in verse 8, very clearly to the men, our responsibility, whoops, that didn't work. There we go. Our responsibility, men, is be united in prayer. We got to pray. But there's qualifications that need to be that need to be there. We need to take, we need to address those things. We need to make sure that we are prepared and qualified, united in prayer, men. Now, verse 9, he turns his attention to the ladies. It's important to note, verse 9 ends with the word uh, likewise or in like manner. That means that in some way, what he is about to say to the women is parallel to what he has just said to the men. Okay, So he says this to the men in verse 8, and then he says, likewise or in the same manner, ladies. Okay, So there's something that's parallel here. And I think this is actually a really key part to understanding what he gets after. Because people, especially the verses to the ladies, people can really... Well, they can do a lot of, they can make a lot of hay okay, with this. Unfortunately, again, missing the point. Because Paul says, no, likewise, there's a comparison here. Something about the men here, some similarity now in the instruction to the women. And I think I'll, I'll be able to hopefully can explain to that um, as, we, as we go here. But look what he says here. Likewise, also, women adorn themselves in this, sorry, this is my translation. In well-ordered apparel with reverence and modesty, not in braids and gold or pearls or costly clothing, but that which is fitting for women who profess reverence toward God through good works. This is verses 9 and 10. Now, what makes those instructions to women parallel to those given to the men? Well, it's not an emphasis on the kind of clothing that you should wear. It's not the principle of modesty, as we've come to think of it in many of our churches, where we're only concerned with how well a woman should cover her body. Paul's message to the men, remember, was how they were supposed to pray. And it was primarily focused on what inward disposition. Remember, I said the, the upraised hands is not the important key here. Okay. But the holiness and the 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 unity, the, 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 the right relationship that they are to have. See, there's an there's a inward disposition that the men are supposed to have. And then that inward disposition is demonstrated by an external action, right? Lifting up holy hands, praying to the Lord. That follows what takes place first in the heart. Men, this is a hard issue. We've got to start there, right? We got to deal with our hearts. We got to have that commitment to holiness. We got to have that commitment to fellowship in, with one another. And that right relationship with God and with others then produces or qualifies us then to have the external, right? Lift our hands up and pray to God. And I think the same, the same kind of thing here is what Paul is doing uh, with reference to the women. 
His focus is primarily on the kind of inward disposition that ladies ought to have, and then how that works itself out in the external appearance. And we tend to get that backwards. We tend to focus on the externals and only afterwards maybe talk about the internals or think we can somehow drive the internal change by putting the right external appearance. It doesn't work that way. And that's not what Paul is doing here. Now, what is his message to the ladies? I think there's two separate instructions. First one is found in verses 9 and 10. And it's very, very simple. It's this. Ladies, excel in modesty and good works. He talks about their modesty in verse 9. He says, women are to adorn themselves. That word is the word that we get our, our English word cosmetic from. And so it's talking about how you, I, I always find that to be strange. How do you, dec, the word that comes to my mind is decorate. But we don't usually talk about ladies decorating themselves. That's We like to decorate the house. We don't decorate the ladies. But that's it's the word I could think of how you decorate yourself, how you ornament yourself, how you make yourself look attractive. That's what Paul's talking about here. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, Paul says, ladies, you should adorn yourselves. This is something they should do, right? So it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. However, there's a certain way. There's a certain emphasis here, right? How should you do it is the question. And what Paul says, first of all, your clothing should be well-ordered. Um, that's that when it, when it says mod, the King James trans or New King James translates it modest apparel. That word modest means well ordered. In other words, not disheveled. So you, you shouldn't look disheveled uh, and dirty, but it should be well ordered. Your your dress, the way you present yourself, your ornamentation, it should look well ordered, well arranged. That's a good thing. Okay. Most of you get that. No problem with that. But also, it should not be done to bring attention to yourself, but instead to reflect your commitment to Christ. Now, he uses the words reverence and modesty here later on in, in that verse. Propriety and moderation, I think, are the two words that are the way it's translated there. Those terms describe the kind of attitude. So here's the thing. The, the, the words that he uses really are referring to the, the attitude of your heart. So Paul's focus here, and then our focus should be on what is the attitude of your heart that prevails when it comes to your clothing and your adornment. Okay. That's where our focus should be because that's where Paul's focus is. Now he does say, and this is something maybe misunderstood, he says, not with braids or gold or pearls or costly clothing. What does he say that? Is braiding your hair out? I didn't look around to see if any ladies had braids in their hair today. I should have, I should have had Grace braid her hair just for just for fun today. She thought about it, but I should have had her do that. Is braiding your hair out, ladies? Is wearing any gold or jewelry out? And what counts as 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 costly clothing? I mean, how much does it have to cost to count as costly clothing? Right? I, um, is that what is Paul doing here? Well, again, let's let's remember again what is Paul saying? Women like the men, are to focus on the inner person first, not the externals. So he doesn't say that you shouldn't wear nice things to church. What he does say is you shouldn't use those things to get attention for yourself. 
or to show off your wealth. This was probably, uh, I was trying to be careful with this because we don't want to read too much into here, but it, it seems that this there was probably a specific issue there in the church at Ephesus that Paul knew was going on, and he's telling Timothy this because this is going to address a problem. So it seems likely that women in the church at Ephesus were uh, dressing in such a way as to show off how wealthy they were. And it was the custom in the Roman world for women to braid their hair and to braid into their hair jewelry, gold, pearls. And the more, the more uh, extravagant or intricate your hairdo was, accompanied by all sorts of expensive things, it was a, a status thing. It was a way to show your status to the world. And Paul's saying, ladies, when you come to church, this is not the appropriate venue for you to show off how much money you have. This is not the appropriate venue for you to see how much attention you can get on yourself. That's what he's saying here. I think it's, in fact, I think it's very similar or along the same lines, what, what Peter says. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says this to wives. Let your beauty not be external, the braiding of hair and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes, but the inner person of the heart. The lasting beauty of a gentle and tranquil spirit, which is precious in God's sight. Now here in 1 Timothy, Paul says there is something that is appropriate or fitting for women who profess to love and follow Christ. There's something that's appropriate for you ladies to wear if you are going to say, hey, I love Christ. I want to show the world that I love Christ. Let me tell you what it is. I heard, I heard the bug zapper going there, okay? Look what Paul says in verse 10. Which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Ladies, here's what you can do to show externally your commitment to Christ. You need to wear good works. Paul says this is the adornment that should be most evident in your life. This is how you demonstrate. See, here's what Paul says. Your priority is not, should not be, to be the best dressed lady at church on Sunday. Now, I haven't seen evidence that that kind of attitude is going on in our church, and I'm thankful for that. But that doesn't mean that there's not a temptation at times for us to think in those terms, compare ourselves to other people, or, 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 or try to dress in a certain way because we, we really want, you know, we really hope somebody would say something nice about how we dress. That should not be our primary concern. But rather, Paul says, demonstrate by your life what it means to love Christ, to obey him and serve his body. What would it look like if at this church our ladies were known for their good works for the cause of Christ? That's what Paul's saying. That's what should be the reputation that's what should be the thing that people think of. That's the kind of, of, of attitude and of life that we should pursue. Ladies, here's how you dress. You put on good works. That's how you show that you are committed to Christ. You see, Paul, Paul's not telling here specific detailed instructions about clothing per se. He's talking about your heart. That's where the focus needs to be. Now, secondly, the second instruction to the ladies 
comes in verses 11 and 12. And then Paul explains his reasoning for it in verses 13 through 15. And here's what he says to the women, if I could summarize it, submit to male leadership in the church. Look at verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And then verse 12, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Let me just ask you a question. Are these two verses that difficult to understand? When we read these verses, now some people have gotten tripped up over the word silence. Paul uses it twice here, the beginning and the end. Um, but I don't think that this is all that difficult to understand. One of the things that's important to note, the word silence that he uses here in verses 11 and 12 is the same word that he used back in verse uh, 2 of the same chapter. Go back and look at that, right? Paul says we're supposed to pray for all men, verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. That word quiet is the same word uh, in the Greek language in verse 2 as we have in verse uh, 11 and 12. Now, when he says lead a quiet and peaceable life, is he talking about not talking? Well, I don't think so. Remember, Paul wants us to preach the gospel. That's why we're praying for all men. So he's not talking about zip your lip. What he's talking here, the issue of quiet life is a life that is at peace, a life of tranquility, of spirit. That's what he's focusing on here. He's referring, again, to the woman's spirit within her, not to her mouth. Paul says very plainly that women ought to be quiet in their spirit, not resisting or rebelling against the authority that God has placed over them in the church, the men. And not necessarily men in general, even in the church, but the man or men whom God has placed in authority in the body. So it doesn't mean that women generically in the church need to uh, you know, answer to all of the men generically in the church. But there are men who are put in positions of authority in the body, as God has ordained. And Paul says, ladies, you should be not resisting or rebelling against that authority. Those are the ones who teach the word and who preach the word to the congregation when it's gathered. Ladies, men too, God has established an order for his church to follow. And we must submit to his authority by yielding to it with a quiet and gentle spirit. That's what Paul is talking about here. Again, I like the way Kent puts it in his comment commentary on these verses. He says, she, referring to the, the woman here as a kind of in general, she is to conduct herself in a manner which does not writhe under authority. She is not to regard herself as unnecessarily imposed upon because of her sex. She is exhorted to assume the attitude of a disciple and to be continually learning. Now again, in the church at Ephesus, it seems that things maybe had gone very wrong 
on this score. The men of the church had neglected their duty to lead in public prayer. That's why Paul exhorts in verse 8, the men need to step up and take their responsibility seriously, prepare themselves, qualify themselves by holy living and by dealing with their relationships so that they can get up and lead the church in prayer as they should. And the ladies are to be at rest in themselves as they submit to Christ by submitting to the men that he has chosen. Again, it's not an insult to women. It is a reflection of God's wise and good design. How do I know that? Because that's how Paul justifies it here. Hey, Paul does this. Look at verse 13 and verse 14. He offers here, he looks at two different aspects uh, historically, and he draws from them principles here. Going back to creation in Genesis 1 and then going to the fall in Genesis 3. Now, in the ancient world, especially to the Jewish mind, there was a great advantage to being the firstborn. Right? The firstborn son in a family received the birthright. You're familiar with that from the story of Jacob and Esau, right? where Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. What was that? Well, as the eldest son, the way it worked in their culture was when the father died, the eldest son inherited everything. It wasn't just that he got a little bit extra. Well, the younger sons would get, a, would get a portion of inheritance. They would get kind of a small fraction of the inheritance. But the oldest son got everything else. Because his responsibility was then to carry on the family name, to be responsible, to lead, and, 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 and continue to cultivate the family property and all of that, and care for you know, his mother and the other ladies who were attending, you know, all of that. His responsibility was to look out for the family interest. It was a big responsibility, but it was a huge privilege as well for the firstborn. It's one of the reasons why the book of Genesis, uh, if you look through Genesis, the whole book, you see routinely God choosing other than the firstborn and God elevating those who were later born. And it's just, it's a way of God saying, yeah, you do it this way, but I do it my way. And I, I'm going to just pick the one I wanted, maybe the, the thirdborn or the fourthborn or whatever, but I'm going to elevate the younger over the older. It does it routinely. But anyways, huge privileges. Well, think about it. If it was a big privilege to be the firstborn in a family, how about being the firstborn of all creation? I mean, the first one created. I should be careful with that because the firstborn of all creation is a line that's used of Jesus, so I don't want to get into that, okay? Sorry, don't misunderstand there. How about being the first one created? Certainly, if being the firstborn in a family brought with it uh, uh, inheritance and advantage, being the first created would be significant. And that's what Paul says in verse 13. He says, Adam was first formed, or Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul is saying that, that since man was created first, he is given the responsibility of spiritual leadership. So there's an important principle. Paul says this goes all the way back to creation. To the very beginning of creation, God created in a certain order, and that order, Paul says, tells us something. This is why he says, ladies, you should be in, 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 in quietness in your spirit as you come to the church to, to listen and receive as disciples the instruction of the men that God has called in a position and authority to serve the church through teaching and preaching. He says, don't writhe under that. Don't, 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 don't get all uh, resistant to that, but yield yourselves to it because man was created first. God has established this order from the very beginning. 
Now, the second point that Paul goes to in verse 14 is he talks about the fall. Adam was not deceived. The woman being deceived fell into transgression. Here's another minefield. Are women just naturally more gullible and therefore not qualified to be leaders? Is that what Paul, I mean, some people have interpreted this verse that way. I'm sorry, that's not what Paul's saying, though. He's not talking here about, particularly about the relationship between men and women. I'm sorry, he is talking about that and the, and the importance of male leadership. What he's saying is that in the fall, there was a reversal of the order that God had created. The serpent, if we think about this, he doesn't mention the serpent here, but the serpent, who was a member of the animal world over which man and woman, mankind was to rule. The serpent, the created order, uh, deceived the woman, exerted influence on the woman. And she then exerted leadership over the man. And then they both rebelled against God. There was a complete reversal of the authority structure. Instead of being God down to the man that he created, to the woman, to the created order, it went the other way. And Paul is saying, look what happened when we get this backwards. It led to the fall and all of the destruction and all of the, the evil and all of the, the, the awful consequences that have happened as a result of that. We could go back and look at Genesis 3 and we could see that it's very clear there in Genesis 3 that Adam is responsible for the fall. God holds him accountable because he was supposed to be the one who was asserting the authority and leading as God had intended. And he failed. And he, he failed. And the destruction that was a result of that, as the roles were reversed, it, 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 it continues to this day to bring disaster. And that's what Paul says. This is why we cannot go against this order. Paul says we need to learn from the example of Adam and Eve, both positive and negative. Positive, the created order is a good order. Negative, when we get the created order backwards, when we twist it around, bad things happen. Where does that leave us? This is where the last verse of the chapter we get into this. Where does that lead us here? Adam and Eve, by their disobedience, bring... Uh, a curse on mankind, and that curse is still with us to this day. It was this; it was with us in Paul's day, and here we are, uh, two thousand years later, and still have the curse with us. Is there any hope? Is there any hope at all in the face of such failure? The answer is found in verse fifteen. Absolutely, Paul says, "But she will be saved in childbearing if they remain in faith and love and purity with modesty." This is one of the most puzzling verses in the entire New Testament. And there are a lot of different interpretations that have been suggested uh, by people. I don't know how many. A lot. I don't want to get too far into the weeds here on that because we don't have a lot of time. And, and I don't just don't want to do that today. But whatever we do with this verse, again, it has to be seen in light of what Paul is saying, his overarching purpose here in this passage. His concern for Timothy and the church at Ephesus had everything to do with the gospel mission of the church. How do we keep the church focused on our mission? How do we make sure that we major on the majors of what God has called us to do and minor on the minors? How do we focus on the right things so we don't get distracted, so we don't get off into fairy tales and myths and genealogies? Remember all that from chapter 1? How do we avoid that? How do we stay focused on the right thing here? 
That's what Paul's doing in this passage. So with that in mind, we can dismiss a couple of wrong interpretations here. Let me just put them out there because I want you to know these are, these are not the way what Paul is saying here. Two really bad ideas. Paul is not saying to you women, you will be saved from hell if you just have babies. I mean, he says she will be saved in childbearing. And some people have interpreted this saying, well, women have babies. That's how you'll be saved. Sorry. Um, obviously, in one, I mean, just flat out, that, that's, that, is a, that is salvation by works. That's a violation of the rest of Scripture on the subject. Not to mention, it leaves all you single ladies and anyone who is infertile out in the cold. How could you be saved then? See? So that, that's out. Okay, That can't be what he's saying. It also is not saying this, and this is what some people have said. Christian women, you will not die in childbirth. See, if you're really a good Christian lady and you love the Lord and you're faithful to him, then you won't, he'll save you in childbearing. You'll, you, you'll survive. You won't have the risk of childbirth. Well, I suppose on one hand we could wish that were true. But sadly, we all know that many godly ladies over the centuries have given their lives in the process of giving birth to a child. And we would fall into that most cruel teaching of the prosperity gospel today, which says if you just have enough faith and you just love God enough, then you then you know nothing bad will ever happen to you. And we would be forced to say, well, these ladies weren't really godly. They must have had a lack of faith, and that's why they died. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Sorry, that's just not it. I think what Paul has in mind here in the first part of the verse, I, I think we, I, I, as I look at this verse, I make a distinction. You'll notice he says in the first part, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. Okay. That's the, I, don't do, I, don't like, I don't like doing grammar lessons with you, but you notice she is the singular there. Okay, That verb there, saved, is a singular verb, so it calls for a singular subject. She will be saved. Well, who is she? Well, I believe in this verse, she is Eve. Okay. Then notice... The second part of the verse, he says, if they continue. You notice they, they is not singular, is it? Okay. They is plural. I think there's a change in who he's referring to there. So I think he's referring in the first part of the verse to Eve. The second part of the verse, he's referring to women in general, Christian women. He's talking about here in the church in Ephesus. And I think it applies here. So I think that in the first part of the verse, he's, he's concluding his point about Adam and Eve. And then he's going to draw this more general principle. Now, remember what? God said in Genesis 3, after man and woman sinned, he confronted them, remember, along with the serpent. Genesis 3 and verse 15, he made this promise to the serpent. He said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I think this first part of the verse is referring here, Paul is referring to Eve, the fact that Eve's hope after she sinned, after she and Adam had, had grievously rejected God's good design, what was Eve's hope? God had given a promise. Eve, you're going to have offspring. You're going to have seed. And that seed is going to overturn. That seed is going to crush the serpent. That seed is going to roll back all of the things you have done. That seed is going to undo it. And I think if we had, if we did it, 
if we had time to study it out, which I hope to later this year, uh, what we would see in Genesis very, very clearly in the chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4 and chapter 5, we see very clearly that Eve expressed faith in this promise. She thought the seed, the son that I have, she gives birth to Cain. She thinks Cain's the one. He's the seed. He's the one God promised. Cain, unfortunately, we all know, not didn't quite live up to the hype, did he? Then she has birth later, gives birth later to Seth, and she says something similar about that. Again, I think we've seen, we're seeing in the language of Genesis, we're seeing Eve believing the promise. That's what I think Paul's referring to here. Now, ultimately, we know, because we know the rest of the story, that the seed that Eve was looking for wasn't going to come for quite a while. The seed would be Jesus Christ. But Eve was looking for that. That was her response of faith. Her hope, her remedy for the sin that she and Adam had committed could not be found in themselves but in the promise of God in believing what God had said about this coming seed who would crush the serpent's head even while he was bruised himself. Eve, when she gave birth to her children, was looking ahead to the salvation of herself and the entire race. That's what I think Paul has in mind here. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. Eve, not by the act of giving birth, but because Eve's birth of her sons in faith, believing the promise of God, that was going to come and bring salvation. That was Eve's hope. And then what Paul does in the second part of the verse, I think as he steps back a little bit, and he includes all of these Christian women, all of these believers who have found hope in the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. He says, we have access to the gospel. It's at the root of all of this. We maintain our focus here on the gospel because it's through the seed of the woman that God brings salvation. This seed, Jesus Christ, is the mediator, Paul mentioned in verse 5, the only means by which anyone can be saved. And we are saved by faith in Christ. And how do we then demonstrate, and I, I wish I had time to build this, but the last, those words that he uses there, continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, those are all words that he has already used in the first two chapters to describe what it looks like to be a Christian. This is what believers do. They exercise faith. They demonstrate love, self-control, holiness. These are qualities that are lived out in the life of the believer. And that's what I think Paul is saying here of the women in the church. Their commitment to the gospel is demonstrated by their obedience here. Ladies, remember that your life needs to be about the ministry of the gospel. That needs to be the, the, the primary focus of your life. The central theme of your life is what has Jesus done for you in saving you? And how then does that affect your life, and your testimony. And men, the same thing for us. Has Jesus Christ saved you? What impact does that have on your life? That ought to lead us to a life of holiness, a life of true fellowship with our brothers and sisters where we can get up and pray and lead in prayer because we have holy hands to lift up without wrath, without uh, conflict. See? 
Paul's concern for us in this church is that we would pray for sinners to be saved and carry ourselves in such a way that our prayer and our witness will be powerful and effective. I trust that each of you will not resist the order that God has given, will not resist the responsibility that God has given, but will yield yourself to obey for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful today for the instruction we receive from your word. Our world has a lot to say about what men and women should be doing in church. Very little of it comes from the Bible. When we see what you instruct here, it's very clear that we are to be about the ministry of the gospel, praying and proclaiming to others. And rather than focusing on ourselves, we are to be submitted to you and yielded to your design and your instruction. And so I pray you'd help us today. Help us in our church not to have fights and conflicts over the roles of men and women. That is not pleasing to you, and that is not the, the goal here. Help us instead to keep our eyes focused on the gospel, on our great Savior, remembering the, 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 the multitudes of lost people around us that need the gospel. Father, I pray that you would stir us with a passionate desire to see them saved and a willingness to set aside our own ambitions and our own desires in order to see your work done in this church and in this community and in the world. And oh, Father, you need to glorify yourself in us and I pray that you would cause each one of us to humble ourselves before you and yield ourselves completely to you as your servants today. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the mediator who gave himself for us that we might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you.